Welcome to Episode 88 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by two guest commentators, uh, Adam Cozy and uh, Johannes Gilger, uh, both from Crowd- CrowdStrike. Uh, welcome, guys. Thank you. Uh, Adam is a senior intelligence analyst there, and Johannes is a junior researcher, and uh, I invited them on uh, the podcast to talk uh, about the great canon uh, because of a, a very interesting uh, uh, black hat uh, talk that they gave recently in Las Vegas. Uh, uh, also uh, with me today is Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now up partner in Steptoe's New York office, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. Uh, uh, Our news roundup, we'll try to keep this pretty uh, short, uh, but there's, I I think, reasonably big news in the uh, uh, safe harbor fight between the European Court of Justice uh, and uh, uh, the United States government and the European Commission and the Article 29 Working Party, uh, sort of a four-cornered fight. Uh, uh, Michael, what's the new development? Well, the European Commission issued a paper last week, which I thought was uh, very interesting. It's, it's basically a very balanced recounting of what's gone on since the ECJ opinion. Uh, and a review of the alternative mechanisms for transferring personal data from the EU to the U.S., uh, including standard contract clauses and binding corporate rules. And they, they uh, sort of, found mo- they sort of, well, what I found most interesting was that they, they, I read it as pushing back against the Article 29 Working Party and some of the, the uh, national DPAs in that it, it basically said, look, uh, under the ECJ opinion, DPAs don't get to overthrow uh, an, an EC decision approving things like standard contract clauses. So these threats from the DPAs that they're not going to allow transfers based on binding corporate rules or they're going to, you know, they're basically trying to dissuade companies from using standard contract clauses, the EC is basically saying, look, these things are still valid and only the ECJ can say that an EC decision approving standard contract clauses, for instance, is, is no longer valid. Uh, so I thought that was pretty significant because companies are pulling out their hair saying, you know, what are we supposed to do after this decision? I I, I saw that, and I, I think you're right. That was the message. That was the intent of the message. Uh, uh, but it, it, am I right that this is kind of a procedural uh, uh, statement? Uh, um, the DPAs can't by themselves overturn, they can't overturn an adequacy determination, but they can say we don't think that uh, uh, exports to the United States of data are uh, permissible under law, and by saying that, uh, it gives them the, an opportunity to, uh, or the uh, individual who is uh, bringing the challenge, the opportunity to go to court, backed up by the uh, local DPA, I and take the case to the ECJ pretty quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this doesn't provide a great deal of comfort for companies because DPAs can cause them a lot of pain, you know, take them through the process that you just described. But at the end of the day, it can't stop the transfer unless, you know, it goes all the way up to the ECJ and the ECJ says, yeah, that, that EC 
opinion approving the standard contract clauses is not valid with regard to the United States, at least. So the message from the European Commission is good news. Prospects are excellent for years of litigation to come. Exactly. And of course, the commission is doing its best to restore the authority that everyone thought they had, which was to make a binding determination of adequacy. Now, after the ECJ opinion, at a minimum, the ECJ has said it's not binding on us and it's not binding on the Article 29 or the DPAs. If they want to challenge it, they have the right to challenge it. Yeah, they can challenge it, but they can't overturn it. They can only initiate a process that ultimately leads to the ECJ. Right. Although whether they could punish you for having carried out the export of data after they get a ruling that's favorable to them at the ECJ is probably an open question, or maybe it's already resolved in favor of the DPA. Once they get a decision from the ECJ, I can't imagine they could issue a penalty if there hasn't been an ECJ ruling yet. Okay. Well, that's good news. That means that you can watch the litigation with a certain equanimity because it isn't going to cost you money at the end. Yeah, but the fight will cost you money. Right. Ultimately, the penalties to date have not been great, which may change under the draft data protection regulation whenever that goes into effect. So meanwhile, the U.S. and the European Commission are negotiating fairly aggressively against a deadline set, you know, ironically, given the commission's claim that the Article 29 working party isn't in charge, set by the Article 29 working party of January. And many people in the U.S. are saying, look, it's got to be done by Christmas because we have to decide for January what we're going to do about implementing a stopgap. What's the prospect, do you think, for actually getting a deal by the end of the year? You know, it's a tough one, and there hasn't been a whole lot of transparency into what they're talking about right now. And I think the big question is, whatever they come up with, is it going to be enough to satisfy the ECJ? Because at rock bottom, what the DPAs are talking about is that there are fundamental inadequacies in U.S. law. And aside from, you know, some amendments to the Privacy Act, I don't think there is a lot of discussion of the U.S. making changes in its surveillance law or in its privacy law. And so without such things, you know, it's unclear whether some procedural things that they agree on that the U.S. undertakes, you know, unilaterally to promise not to do this or that. You know, I just don't know that that's going to be enough to satisfy the ECJ. I think the U.S. can probably say that to the extent that the opinion of the ECJ was based on the idea that there's mass indiscriminate surveillance, it was wrong. They can probably get an assurance for the government about what the PPD that the president issued, giving certain limited privacy rights to foreigners and what the actual meaning of the statute is. They can probably 
say something that the commission can accept if it chooses to, and my bet is they will choose to because uh, uh, without that they they become increasingly irrelevant. So my guess is that there's going to be a deal, uh, uh, and it will be based on passing this silly uh, Judicial Redress Act giving uh, additional Privacy Act rights to uh, Europeans and some assurances from the government. Yeah, you know, I I think that's a pretty good bet. Um, And I could construct an argument right now that that even without the Judicial, you know, the the Judicial Redress Act, that that you could make a very good argument that uh, U.S. law already provides essentially equivalent privacy protection, which is the ultimate standard that, that we've got to meet. But again, the, the, the fundamental question is, will that persuade the ECJ at the end of the day? You know, my bet is that, look, they're, they're uh, first, many of the people who wrote that opinion have moved on to uh, uh, different jobs, but uh, uh, they're politically astute. Uh, and one of the things that really hurt the U.S. case uh, was that the commission supplied much of the criticism of U.S. law, saying, yeah, well, we don't think it's very good, and we've got a real problem with it, and we're going we're gonna to demand a renegotiation. That was the state of the argument that they made uh, to the ECJ. They said, yes, it sucks, but give us more time, and we'll negotiate something better. So uh, when the, uh, even though the ECJ didn't have much of a record, the record it had was from every branch of European government critical of U.S. law. Um, if there's a deal, the commission will have to come in and defend U.S. law rather than attacking it. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. That, 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 um, it's interesting how that played out. So I guess we'll have to see if the commission now can, uh, can patch things up. All right. Well, and uh, uh, the other topic I wanted to talk about today, because I, I blogged this briefly, uh, is uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is finally uh, has finally been released so that people can read it. Uh, and uh, this is an enormous trade deal with a dozen countries uh, that border on the Pacific. It's uh, uh, meant, uh, as as uh, uh, President Obama would say, to make sure that the U.S. rather than China writes the trade rules for the 21st century, uh, and it is a sprawling agreement. Uh, uh, what I was interested by uh, is, uh, uh, what, in fact, what I tweeted is, the crypto war is over and USTR has won. The guys who did the negotiation uh, uh, actually uh, added in uh, a provision that says that uh, uh, no government may ask companies to provide, may require companies to provide the keys of their encryption. Uh, uh, and that there's no exception there for uh, uh, the uh, uh, NSA or for FBI. Interestingly, there is an exception for financial regulators. Uh, uh, so Mary Jo White wins, USTR uh, uh, calls it uh, for her and against uh, um, uh, the FBI, Jim Comey, uh, or Mike Rogers at NSA. A, a weird outcome indeed, uh, um, the idea that we would prioritize prosecution of insider trading over prosecution of child porn or terrorism. Uh, um, a, and uh, I, I got a note from a guy at K 
Cato uh, that I ought to uh, refer to here, um, and I don't know, uh, Michael, if you noticed this, but uh, there is also an exception in, you know, a different part of the agreement that essentially says uh, nothing in this agreement precludes a, cu- a party from applying measures it considers necessary uh, with respect to the maintenance or restoration of in- international peace or security or the protection of its own essential security interests. Uh, so essentially, if you can say this is uh, a measure tied to our essential security interests, you can do it notwithstanding whatever, the, whatever is said elsewhere in the agreement. Uh, and uh, the, the folks at Cato were saying, you know, that may mean that uh, the bar on requiring keys is sort of a dead letter from the start. Uh, and I think that's probably right. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, having raised this issue, now I, I think what we have is a situation where um, the text seems to give a right to companies to keep their uh, uh, keys and in uh, elsewhere there's a provision that says you don't have to give over your source code uh, um, but it may be that a government can simply say oh yeah but it's related to our essential security so we're going to demand it yeah you know that that's interesting i also thought it was interesting that in the uh, provision about encryption itself there's an exception for service providers. So there's a distinction between manufacturers of products who, who can't be required to turn over a key or to or to render their in, encryption uh, breakable, but for service suppliers who use encryption that they control, um, they can be provided to turn over plain text. So Apple may be okay with regard to the iPhone, for instance. It can make unbreakable encryption in its iPhone, but it can be forced, if a country so uh, desires, to provide plain text upon demand for uh, emails that that it provides under its service. That's a, I think, a very critical distinction that no one's paying attention to. And then how that how they came to decide that you know manufacturers shall be sacrosanct, but service suppliers shall not is an interesting issue. Yeah, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, it's you're right. It's it's a little bit odd. Uh, 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 Partly it's because the assumption is that uh, service providers are heavily regulated and are going to have to do what the government wants anyway, so that uh, uh, whereas the manufacturers and the software producers uh, are a little more standoffish and more inclined to think they can uh, um, refuse to carry out uh, uh, orders of the government. But, but, you know, those service suppliers might include uh, Google with Gmail and ah. Apple with, you know, Apple email uh, addresses. Um, you know, I, we, we don't know how they're going to how they're going to define these things, but um, it seems to me those are service suppliers. Yeah. So it, uh, it, it, and exactly how we ended up here is is, I think, really interesting. The TPP gives away a lot of authority to uh uh, uh it gives a, provides a lot of things that uh, Hollywood and uh, uh software uh, intellectual pro- uh property protection uh, interests wanted uh that raised the question of you know is Google unhappy then is Facebook unhappy are all of silicon valley unhappy with the amount of uh, protection that intellectual property was given and i suspect that what happened is that uh uh, USTR said, well, we have to give Hollywood what they want. They've been 
been with us for 20 years or more. Uh, uh, but we also have to make Silicon Valley happy. How about instead of trading away uh, things that Hollywood wants, we trade away things that um, Jim Comey wants? Because, you know, that's no skin off our nose. Uh, uh, that's my guess about how that uh, uh, that negotiation went. Well, it's all, you know, <laughs> talk about lack of transparency. This is all so secret. Who knows? Well, you know, someday maybe someone will write a, a long, very boring book about um, the negotiations that led to this behemoth. Uh, <laughs> yes. It'll take a while for us to know. <clears throat> so um, a couple of other uh, uh, sh- shorter points. Uh, um, David Smith, the deputy commissioner of data protection in the U.K., has written a blog post saying, hey, has the search result ruling, that is to say the right to be forgotten, uh, stopped the Internet working? Why? No, it hasn't. Uh, you kind of say, uh, gee, when you have to start your argu- your article with, has this stopped the Internet working, you kind of know what the answer is, but it's a very defensive way to talk about the right to be forgotten. Uh, he it, he sort of knocks down straw men, saying, uh, "Well, it hasn't been that bad. Uh, there haven't there hasn't been an enormous surge of cases, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we've only overturned Google's decisions about twenty percent of the time." Right? Uh, so that's uh, uh, Smith trying to, I think, minimize the impact of the right to be forgotten. Well, the, I, the interesting thing I, I found uh, was that he announced that the U.K. had also gone back and changed an enforcement order so that the, the, the British are now following the French model of extending the right to be forgotten beyond uh, the European uh, extensions of search engines to, you know, Google.com and, and any other uh, extension. Yeah, I, uh, which, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. That is that is a fascinating part of this. Uh, um the French, I thought, were kind of implying that Google.com had to be censored uh, in this way, and uh, Smith chooses a middle ground. He he says, uh, we just want to make sure that you uh, censor the search results for anybody you have geolocated as being within the U.K.'s jurisdiction. Yeah, from whatever site. So, I mean, I think it effectively... Effectively has the the same result uh, unless Google decides okay we're going to make results on Google.com accessible everywhere but the UK rather than just saying we're going to make it inaccessible everywhere because that's easier for us to do. I've, I've been assuming that Google, in order to comply with the French ruling, was going to either have to censor Google.com or start geolocating anyway. Uh, so my guess is um, geolocation is probably the uh, the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I mean, in terms of free speech, it, it is. Uh, I don't know which is harder for them to effectuate. Um, and it may be that politically they decide, well, let's just, you know, let's just censor uh, uh, results Everywhere. around the world so that the rest of the world gets a little ticked off at the at the Europeans and decides to put some pressure on them saying stop censoring speech in our country. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't hold my breath for any country to, uh, to take the view of the First Amendment that the United States takes. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it, it does, uh, you know, it's just one more issue on which the EU is setting itself apart from, from significant chunks of the rest of the world. Well, in, but it, you're right, you know. 
And maybe, maybe the rest of the world, other than the U.S., doesn't really care that much about this issue. Yeah, and, and maybe we should move on to uh, to talk about the great canon because, in an odd way, uh, uh, the uh, right to be forgotten is part of the same debate, which is uh, uh, how much um, uh, should we be dividing up the internet into different jurisdictions because clearly what's going on with the uh, the UK data protection authority is to say well you know we'll make our rules for searches inside the UK uh, and we'll expect Google to enforce the geolocation rules uh, uh, and there'll be one internet uh, and one set of internet results inside the UK and a different set uh, inside the US and certainly there's a different set inside uh, China yeah, no, it's an interesting point. So let's have at it. All right. So, uh, um, uh, Johannes, uh, uh, Adam Cozy, uh, um, we're here to talk about the uh, the great canon. Let's start out uh, with the basics. What is it, and uh, why should we care? Sure. Uh, first off, thanks for having us on today. Oh, it's uh, great. And uh, yeah, so the great canon is kind of uh, when, when you think about China, everyone of course knows about the Great Firewall, and that's a little bit more of the defensive way that uh, China controls the information coming in and outside of China. The Great Canon was basically the offensive answer to that, saying that it was no longer good enough to control it inside China, but actually trying to enforce uh, what they term as cyber sovereignty uh, overseas and uh, take out overseas target. Um, Johannes, do you want to talk a little bit about how that is possible? Sure. Um, so... To understand the, the great canon, um, we have to look at the timeline of how the events unfolded that led to the discovery and the naming of uh, the great canon. And it all started in really in March 19 this year when uh, the website greatfire.org, which uh, is, a, is a Chinese-run website by Chinese dissidents, um, was attacked with the DDoS. Now, um, what greatfire.org does is it keeps track of the Chinese um, censorship apparatus, so it keeps track of keywords being blocked, of websites being blocked. And uh, it's safe to say that they would be one of the prime targets of, of any kind of uh, offensive action by Chinese officials. Um, so they posted an entry on their blog saying, we are attacked with a huge amount of traffic. Uh, this is huge DDoS. It's actually costing us uh, multiple tens of thousands of dollars a day in, in hosting bills. And um, this was a sustained attack. And a little later, that same month, uh, the, the website GitHub, which is a U.S. Uh, company um, which offers source code hosting, um, was was equally attacked. So they, they put out a statement on their blog saying, we've identified a huge DDoS attack. We're trying to mitigate it. Um, services resuming, but they did have some, some impact, obviously, uh, some issues, obviously. And um, then they noticed how this attack kept going on and going on and actually evolving and, and changing in, in scope and, and method. And so these might be seen as, as separate incidents because GitHub doesn't have terribly much to do with the Chinese dissident website, but if you if you look at what's going on behind the scenes, um, makes it starts making sense. So the way that um, Great Fire avoids being censored inside of China is by actually hosting a lot of its content for its Chinese uh, readers on this website, GitHub. Um, and uh, the reason they do that is uh, something, uh, it's a concept uh, that has been called collateral freedom. So they host 
their content on a website which is prohibitive in, in economic terms for the Chinese government to block. So they say if there they wanted so to block it, us, they I, have to block the whole website, the whole legitimate service. And that's not something they can afford. They actually tried it once before, and the Chinese citizens who rely on this service on this GitHub website, um, they simply didn't accept it, having the whole service offline. So they had to restore the service. And now Great Fire is coming along and saying, like, we're hosting our stuff on this service as well, and you can't distinguish which visitors are actually going to GitHub for legitimate, I don't know, source code browsing and which visitors are going to GitHub to get the information that Great Fire provides. And, and so um, what happened was that uh, the Speedos attack uh, attacked both the Great Fire website as well as the repository um, hosted on, on GitHub. So if I if I can uh, summarize, I mean the, the uh, because the source code repository was so valuable to uh, uh, Chinese techies, uh, the government of China couldn't shut down access to GitHub, which was outside China. Uh, so instead, they started attacking GitHub to essentially punish them for their decision to let GreatFire.org uh, uh, be part of the content that they were making available to uh, to Chinese nationals. Um, and they, to do that, they used the Great Firewall, and, and if I understand this right, the Great Firewall is meant to inspect um, uh, packets crossing from China uh, to uh, uh, the uh, rest of the world or the other way around to make sure that none of them contain, say, references to Falun Gong. And uh, uh, in order to be able to do that, uh, the Chinese government has set up something that allows them to look at essentially every packet that crosses the border. Uh, and they found a way instead of using this to censor what was going into China, to start using it to attack outside of China. Is that right? Right. Um, but there's a little bit of technical um, differences between this uh, existing great firewall system, which was well known before, and this newly uh, created great, great cannon. And that's where it actually gets interesting from a technical point of view, but also from the, the implications that has. So the way that the great firewall works, um, as you pointed out, is by inspecting uh, content mainly trading outside of China and then looking for certain keywords keywords which are to be blocked, which are to be censored. And then if, if the Great Firewall detects any of these keywords or detects any of the censored websites being accessed, it can actually just reset the connection. So the connection will not take place. The user won't receive any content from the foreign website um, and they simply get a timeout message or something like that. And that was a, a mechanism, that's why it was called the Great Firewall, it was a mechanism put in place for censorship, for one and only reason being censorship. The Great Canon is a different system in that it not only, that it, it doesn't reset the web, uh, it doesn't reset, reset the connection, but it can actually uh, alter the content of these connections. And it doesn't work on outbound connections uh, originating from China, but it, it worked on inbound connections. So international visitors browsing two websites in, inside of China, so for example Baidu uh, being the biggest Chinese search engine, they would have their traffic alt altered. So the responses coming back from Baidu would have been altered in transit. And the way that they made use of, of that capability being being able to alter traffic in flight basically 
was by replacing one of the um, many code snippets that modern websites use for stuff like ads, um, advertisement, um, user tracking, stuff like that. And they injected like a really tiny snippet of code, which only did one thing, and that one thing was to call out to different websites like Gradefire and GitHub, which by itself isn't doesn't sound malicious at first, but if you consider the volume of, of users going to a huge search engine like Baidu, and then you think that uh, think about that each of these users will in fact then um, um, create another request being sent to Great Fire or GitHub, um, it, it becomes clear that these additional requests can quickly overwhelm the, cap the capacity of these smaller websites. So by browsing to, to Chinese websites, international users have in, inadvertently contributed to the, the flow of traffic and, and actually created the DDoS attack on these international websites. So it, 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 what this means, I guess, if I'm understanding you, is anytime somebody in the U.S. or in Taiwan or in Hong Kong, because these are mostly going to be Chinese speakers, goes to a website, uh, downloads an ad, does a search, that uses a, uh, a computer inside of China, the Chinese government can also run code on their computer that does whatever the Chinese government wants it to do. Yeah, so, so in this case, they didn't even have to be directly uh, visiting Baidu. So a lot of times in, in ads, you know, yeah. Baidu has a sponsored ad, and they were able to actually intercept that that JavaScript and re. You know, rewrite part of it. Right. For pe people who who use the internet, have probably noticed that three quarters of the code and bits you download are crap you don't want, right. uh, <laughs> exactly. and and uh, much of it ads. Uh, uh, and so they could just say, if Baidu's ad network has an ad on a site uh, at uh, some other uh, uh, non-political uh, website inside China, uh, that could have been used as the basis for injecting uh, malware. Exactly. So. Uh, uh, so yeah, you you have this uh, variety of openings essentially, um, and I think that's what was interesting. There had been uh, plenty of theories about the Chinese being able to turn their massive domestic user base into a large kind of uh, unwitting botnet, um, but in this case, they were actually using uh, people outside of China to do this. Which... I, I I thought that was one of the more interesting things uh, um, that this was the Chinese government. Uh, attacking a U.S. institution using U.S. computers. Uh, uh, to call that cyber sovereignty uh, is probably not quite getting at it. It's more like uh, cyber uh, international adventurism. Uh, uh, and it couldn't be a, a more direct challenge to the United States is kind of, you know, take your uh, uh, views about human rights and uh, what you control and shove them because they couldn't have expected that this was not going to be attributed to them, could they? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, that was something that Johannes and I uh, talked about pretty frequently in our in our presentation was, is there any way that they could not have known about this? And, uh, you know, that's part of what we did with uh, the attribution as well as uh, Citizen Lab, who, of course, wrote the uh, first report kind of terming it great canon. They did a uh, phenomenal a great, great job. Report, yeah. yeah. Um, so using some of their information and uh, some of the information that we were looking at, you know, we looked a little bit more attribution and it was very clear that this has had to be signed off at some senior levels of government. And uh, Lu Wei, who, of course, is the... Um, 
Chinese he's, kind of cybers are. He's, yeah, he's, he's really he's the guy in charge of all of these men. He is, and uh, it was it was very interesting to hear his perspective. He actually uh, you know came to DC around this time last year and and had some interesting conversations. And one of the things he said was, you know. Um, that China needs this sort of censorship. You know, you you don't understand it from a Western perspective. And so uh, he had a lot of interesting things to say. And then, of course, as he was um, kind of coming into more power at uh, at the beginning of last year, um, that's when we really started seeing just a much more kind of aggressive stance uh, from the Chinese when it came to pushing this notion of, of cyber sovereignty. And, of course, uh, even Xi Jinping himself sits on one of the national level uh, kind of, you know, councils that, that discusses this along with Liu Wei. So to, to, for them to say that we had no idea this was going on is, is completely ludicrous. So what is the, it's, the U.S. government it, it has to see this or should have, you would have thought would have seen this as a direct challenge to its notion that it has sovereignty over machines that are owned by Americans on American soil. Uh, and, um, a, as far as I can tell, the only thing the U.S. government has done, and maybe you've heard more, is they went to China and said, would you investigate this, please, which is sort of a kind of a joke. Yeah, we, we choked in our presentation that that's, you know, that's asking the kid with cookie crumbs all over his mouth, you know, did you get into the cookie jar? Like, <laughs> or more, more, could you figure out, tell me who got into the cookie yeah, jar? Exactly. I could say, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay, well, uh, from the point of view of users, this kind of means that, um, well, what does it mean? Uh, obviously, it's a bad thing to have your computer uh, doing a denial of service attack on GitHub. You would prefer not to be in that position. Uh, uh, but I think when I wrote about this, I, I said, well, that's like being told you're littering. That's a bad thing. You don't want to be littering. But in this case, it's littering that could cause cancer too, right? Because once the Chinese are putting code to run on your computer, um, just attacking Dida, uh, 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 GitHub is the only, only one of the things they could do. Right. So um, actually, Johannes, do you want to talk a little bit more about what kind of the, uh, in, what else they can do with those injections? Yeah, sure. So uh, that was actually one of the most uh, surprising things uh, we, we put up as our first question when we started investigating this because the way that this attack was done was very open and very obvious and it had a very limited impact. Um, so first of all, it didn't really succeed in, in bringing down any of these websites um, for the long term. And it was also they gave the hand away really early. That's At least that's how it looked like. And then we started theorizing... Um, what what else they could have done given that capability and and if you start enumerating all the possible scenarios on on what kind of malicious malicious payloads they could have been delivering, um, it starts to get scary and 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 that's why we ask ourselves why they gave the hand away, thereby thereby revealing their capability so early, and. Um, so one of the things they could do is, is deliver way more malicious JavaScript code, which is not, not tailored to, to attacking different websites, but which might be tailored to attacking the actual individuals browsing to these websites. So there are a lot of vectors where they could try to, to, to um, collect information about these individuals and, and kind of prepare the attack because it's 2015 and our web browsers are pretty secure at this point, luckily, but 
there are some vulnerabilities which creep up every now and then. And, and intercepting a target, an individual which you want to target in, in that narrow window when he's vulnerable to a specific uh, software flaw is, is hard. But it gets easier if you have this huge mechanism where you can kind of enumerate and collect information on users beforehand and then just wait for the right, uh, right point in time to strike against them. So this is one of the um, scarier scenarios. And then basically, um, apart from browsers, from web browsers, there are obviously different communication protocols, and a lot of them still run on plain text. And the implication is that everything being sent across the Internet into China in, in plain text can be altered, can be can be replaced. It could be the content of the email, or it could be um, the the actual file attachment to the email being replaced by a malicious um, executable or something like that. Wow! Um, but that's so, a, that's only uh, only if you're only starts. if you am I right? That's only if you're using a uh, Chinese email provider. Yeah, right. But you could be communicating with someone inside of China and not even realize that he's located inside of China and that. Somewhere along the line, your email is crossing the 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 the, the great canon um, border, kind of. So, so from your perspective, it looks like a completely legitimate email that you got back from a friend, but at some point, it kind of made a stopover and comes back. Right. With, it could be from coming from Hong Kong, yeah. and it, it goes through Shanghai, and they just do what they will with it. Yep. I was thinking that it would be entertaining, and I'm sure they'll they'll try this. Uh, uh, if you just change one of the ads to say. Yo, Adam Cozy, I got your OPM file and your Anthem Health files, and uh, we need to talk. And a little here's the phone number. Yeah. Right? They could do that to, to you as soon as they saw you browsing across the the firewall. Absolutely, I'm uh, I'm going to be careful opening my email now that you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that they could just serve that as a, as an ad. All right, absolutely, yeah. And um, uh, Johannes, uh, are you confident that they haven't used the uh, this trick in other contexts first uh, uh, would we know if they had been injecting malware uh, on a retail basis in a more targeted way so this is uh, one of the things that we only um, got to know after our presentation at black hat this year so as, as i said we 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 thought about why they would give give away that capability that early and then in an obvious fashion like that because then everybody could at least theoretically could prepare for 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 those attacks but as we later got to know from different sources, one of them being the Citizen Lab report, um, was that Great Cannon actually was used a full year before this this obvious Great Great Cannon incident against GitHub. So there were injections happening a full year before this incident, um, and these were likely in happening in a smaller scale because they they didn't become public knowledge and were only picked up by dedicated uh, researchers with the right amount of resources to detect that um, targeting on a, on, a, on a global level. So I've, I've heard people say, well, they were so embarrassed by getting caught like this, they aren't going to do this again. Cozy, uh, um, do you think that they will or won't? Uh, I, I absolutely think that they will at some point. Uh, what you have to kind of pay attention to is the is the language uh, that they're using when they talk about cyber sovereignty. And the more that they are pushing this notion, uh, the more it just kind of makes sense. I mean, what, they have these capabilities. There has been zero to little blowback uh, or, or repercussions. Why would you not use it again? I, 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 it, I mean, it's it's astonishing. They've demonstrated that they have the ability to 
uh, inject malware to, into any um, message or uh, stream of content that crosses the border um, and that they're going to do it. Uh, if if the United States government announced a policy of injecting malware into computers that were brought across our border, I, uh, there would be an enormous outcry. EFF and CDT and the ACLU would be suing, and every single browser manufacturer would be developing uh, uh, tools to prevent that. I haven't seen anything, uh, any reaction of that kind toward this uh, uh, attack. Yeah, and uh, I Guess a little surprising, but but not surprising when you consider that you know how the, how the U.S. views that and what you know that would mean as far as kind of almost domestic censorship. In reality, when you talk about you know a, a borderless internet, like China has had a border since the very very early days of the Great Firewall, so that we're talking the late 90s. So that they've they've had a border, whether we refer to it as that or not. <laughs> yeah, you you quoted uh, something that they said when they first put the Great Firewall in place, or maybe when they started uh, connecting to the Internet. They said, across the firewall or across the Great Wall, we can reach anywhere. Yeah, and that was that was really interesting. That was actually the first message that they sent across, uh, you know, the the Chinese Internet. They were, of course, referring to the, the Great Wall of China. And so it's just ironic that later on, their own citizens named their, you know, censorship capabilities the Great Firewall, and now it's actually... <laughs> Is reaching to every corner of the world in a very invasive way. Yeah, that, it's it's not a promise; it's a threat. Uh, um, so, uh, what should people be doing? I mean, the U.S. government is it's just kind of missing in action. I uh, I asked uh, uh, Chairman McCall from the Homeland Security Committee and uh, Michael Daniel from the National Security Council uh, at a meeting. Uh, it was an open meeting last week. What they were doing and. I didn't get any uh, a sense that uh, there was a plan, that there were, were meetings on this. It's like uh, uh, they're not paying attention to it. Uh, they, they, they missed it when it happened, and therefore uh, there's no plan to take action. So yeah, and and Johannes, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what you know individual users can kind of do to protect themselves, uh, because you're right, a lot of the bigger orgs are not kind of stepping up in this case. Right. So unfortunately, there's, at least in my point of view, very little that can be done at, at this point in time. So the, the technical means to protect um, one oneself or to protect uh, the service, um, these all exist by now, and these are readily accessible. So it's not it's not rocket science to to, to set up something like HTTPS and protect the users against eavesdropping or manipulation of traffic. But the the incentives have to be there. For, for U.S.-based companies, these incentives have materialized over the over the last few years, and now uh, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely standard practice that every website which deals with any kind of user data, or which deals with any kind of user interaction, has HTTPS enabled by default. And people actually, um, even 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 lay, laymen, are kind of educated to the dangers of browsing plain websites. And that's just not the case in, inside of China. And, and unless there's some incentive and some re-education going on, there will be very little um, um, movement forward to, to move the big Chinese services to HTTPS so that also international users can, can benefit from having a protected connection to these services. No, I, I would have thought that the least effective 
uh, argument you could make for HTTPS is that it will make the Chinese government less effective in asserting its power abroad. Uh, um, uh, that will make the Chinese government not like HTTPS, and they probably don't like it anyway for uh, obvious law enforcement uh, uh, reasons. Uh, um, and for uh, you know, Americans or Taiwanese who are connecting to the uh, an inside China um, site, it takes two to have HTTPS. And you can say, I want it, but if the uh, uh, site you're connecting to doesn't offer it, then you're just out of luck. Yeah, so that'll be, that'll that'll be interesting to kind of see how that goes, uh, especially moving forward. Um, as I think that these are still uh, what China terms as as private enterprises, so that they do have shareholders and stakeholders in in what they're doing. But ultimately, they are still beholden to the government. So if the government, at the end of the day, says we don't want you to use HTTPS, they don't have to. Well, and I think you you, you guys said during your presentation that uh, one disincentive is that uh, Baidu's search results won't list you if you're offering an HTTPS connection. Is that right? Yeah. So in, in this case, it's an, an active something that Baidu is actively doing that prevents you from having any sort of incentive to do it. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, it, it, this is not unknown to Google. They have announced that they would uh, um, downgrade you in their search results if you didn't have HTTPS. So it's a it's a kind of battle of political correctness uh, with each search engine uh, adopting its own theory about uh, whether uh, uh, TLS connections should be encouraged or discouraged. Definitely. Uh, I, although I think they they just said you know we're going to knock you down uh, a place or two, uh, whereas uh, Baidu's policy is much more. You just don't show up, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Uh, so uh, one possibility, it seems to me, is that uh, we ought to at least have a way of not going to places inside the Chinese Great Firewall if we don't have to, right? Because otherwise you could find yourself with a Chinese ad network buying an ad uh, on the New York Times site, right? Right. Um, I mean – Johannes, uh, for, I mean, from my perspective, it's the the way that the internet works. That's not uh, an entirely possible thing. Do you have any additional comments? Yeah, I I'd say the same. So um, the internet, the way this is this works is way too complex and, and way too convoluted at this point to kind of draw any any borders um, in, in in geographical terms and then tell your browsers to respect those. So I think the best approach is, as I said, the education of the general public to the dangers and then just just um, having secure software, having having best practices deployed everywhere, educating users about the, the dangers of, of running outdated software, especially obviously when connecting to, to Chinese websites. So let me let me ask, let me push it back on that because of course not everybody is, is even if, if you are totally uh, patched up uh, and reasonably confident that your browser isn't uh, susceptible to uh, um, uh, the malicious Java, Java uh, or sorry uh, JavaScript attack uh, um, you're still um, going to be contributing to the projection of Chinese power because they can do a DDoS attack uh, uh, just by injecting the uh, uh, the, uh, the JavaScript in, and you won't have anything to say about that, right? Yeah, so I, I think... Right, that's true, but go ahead, go ahead, Cozy. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I mean, one, one of the things that I, I think uh, is, is important to get across is that since these are... 
privatized companies, and they are still, uh, you know, interfacing with the U.S. They're not in a complete bubble, um, although I think China wants that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, there is the ability to pressure some of these companies uh, from the outside to adopt more secure. Um, practices. Where's the FTC when we need them? They should be, you know, I really, if, if any U.S. company had, uh, uh, subjected to their users to the possibility of malicious Java, JavaScript injections, uh, the FTC would be all over them and they'd have a 20-year consent decree and be paying fines out the wazoo. Um, but, you know, uh, the FTC is missing in action too. Yeah, and what, what we kept stating in our presentation over and over again is that China even still, China's uh, an entirely different animal, and it's uh, you have you have to respect that from uh, whether you like it or not. It they have they they're going to keep doing what they're doing, and they're very good at it. So I, I I'm not quite ready to give up on the idea that you could uh, identify uh, uh, calls to. Uh, um, that went across the Great Firewall, uh, but we'll come back to that uh, at uh, uh, in a later uh, session. This was a terrific uh, um, uh, talk, and I really appreciate uh, both uh, Johannes and Cozy coming in. Um, we usually ask our uh, uh, participants if they've got any upcoming speeches, reports, and other things they want to plug. Uh, uh, do either of you have some things that you want to let our uh, listeners know about? Uh, no specific um, reports or presentations uh, coming up right off the bat, but um, you can always tune in. Uh, both Johannes and I uh, do public blogging on CrowdStrike's website, um, so uh, be sure to kind of tune in and check that out regularly. Um, we'll be coming out with quite a few more projects, and I'm sure that this is not, especially the Great Canon, is, is not an issue that is going to go away anytime soon. We're looking forward to it. Thank you, uh, Adam Cozy, Johannes Gilger, uh, uh, and Michael Vattis. Uh, uh, we're um, uh, open to uh, uh, feedback uh, if you uh, uh, send that to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or Call us at 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 88 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical, the guardian of Ubuntu uh, Linux software. Uh, we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and governance.